The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the reading of God's word. We pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege of being here, uh, worshiping together. Thank you for the freedom of worship. And now, Lord, we lift up these words to you that have been read. These are your words, Lord, the word of truth. And we pray, Father, for Pastor Scott and Pastor Randall as they speak the truth according to your word. May there be clarity of speech and understanding in each of our hearts. And we would pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Andrea. Well, once again, welcome to First Baptist Church in Grace City. We welcome you uh, here, and uh, it's exciting to be together. And uh, we're going to talk about what that means today. We're back on our stools, but uh, we have a table now. We do. Yeah. We do have okay. a, a table here. It's pretty sturdy. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I, I usually... Uh, a music stand a lot, and I really like to get away from it, but sometimes it's really wobbly, and I'll put my foot on it, just so, on the leg, just so I can lean on it, and, you know, in 15 years, I've never fallen over, so That's good, today yeah. could be the first. <laughs> All right, well, why are we here? This well, is a, a big deal. It is. I'm stalling till I get this open. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I just want to say first thank you. From, from, from the Grace City side, I want to say thank you for hosting us. 
Thank you for allowing us to be here uh, today. And, um, you know, the joy for me was being able to go outside and seeing people uh, hugging and meeting each other for the first time um, because I, I, that's, that's really the, the heart of what I think all of this is about, is for us to come together. And so some of you have, have said, I'm, I'm praying specifically for you and Pastor Scott. I just want to say thank you for that. And I also want to invite you, please continue to give us your feedback, continue to give us your insights, because we're learning through this process as we come together. So just thank you for, for hosting us this morning. Grace City, can we just say thank you to First Baptist? All right, so getting back to your question, Scott, what, what's, what's the point <laughs> of all of this? What, what's brought us to this point? I'll let you tell the story. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we started talking about this, uh, what do we want to say, nine months ago. And uh, we've told the story maybe in larger detail before, but just started exploring what it is that God would have for our church being just a mile apart on the same mission and beginning to realize that there are lots of different ways that uh, we thought, you know what, this would improve things at First Baptist or this would improve things for Grace City and uh, maybe we're actually better together. There is, uh, you know, an interesting thing where churches are all over the place, right? And sometimes they are separate because they have specific views on things that are really hard to get past and that's just kind of what has happened over time. But, you know, Jesus, when he prayed in John 17 for us, he prayed for unity that uh, we would have unity in the gospel and unity in the message so that the world would know that Jesus was sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. And uh, that's what we want to be about. We have that same mission, and we began to see that we have the same heart. And over time, as things have changed in the past year at First Baptist and things are changing all the time at Grace City, we started to realize, you know, the things that we really need to accomplish at First Baptist, Grace City is doing super well. And some things that Grace City really needs to do, First Baptist is doing really well. And what is the reason to not be together? And so we started praying about that and meeting regularly. We're meeting at uh, Starbucks all the time, talking about it and praying about it for quite a while. And uh, then through just different circumstances, interestingly enough, the Lord started using our churches together in ways that uh, were just amazing. We started supporting a, a similar missionary. Somebody goes to, to uh, Gray City already. Uh, the Grace City young adults were invited to come to Kairos and, and the leadership uh, was done there. For Kairos is our young adult ministry. And we were just starting to get amazed at how often this was happening. Somebody came to one of our meetings and said, hey, why aren't we uh, doing things like that church that meets in the high school down the street? They literally said that. And I'm saying, really, that's a great, excellent question. Why aren't we doing that? Um, and that person had no idea that he and I had been talking together. And somebody said, you know what, churches today are under a lot of threat and we need to actually get together. And they used the example of Roman soldiers would hook their, their shields together and they were just stronger together. And it's just an amazing thing how many times this came up. So we began to realize, you know what, we should pay attention to what God is doing here and be open to something different, something that is new, something that is unexpected, something that we really think God might want to do with our churches together, just a mile apart, impacting our community here in UC and the surrounding areas and San Diego, our great city that we love. This is America's finest city. We want it to be that, right? <laughs> we do. We do. And so uh, 
Yeah, here so we I are. think for us, you know, over these next few weeks, you're wondering, okay, well, what, what should I expect? And so for us, it's worshiping together. Um, next week, we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph um, and the book of Genesis. And so for us, we want to continue to study scripture and worship together. Uh, we're going to be doing city groups together. And so just like um, Brooke shared, we're, we're going to be jumping into uh, studying the word of God together in smaller groups and we would love for you and invite you to jump into those uh, we're going to do ministry together right now there are people that are serving shoulder to shoulder with the greeting with the kids ministry and all of those things this morning again can we thank the volunteers who've helped this morning put this together man it's incredible stuff that's happening, you know, and so ministry's happening together, and, and here's our encouragement. You know, as we go into this, it's this, and we had a staff meeting this week. We said, hey, we are all in. We're all in. The reason is, is because we believe that God is the leader of our lives, and so for us, it's, hey, we are here. We're at this moment. It's happening right now, and you know what? You can just kind of hold back a little bit, or you can be all in. We're just going to be all in and let God decide whatever this looks like. Right, and so that was our thing this, this week. It's like, and so my encouragement to you is, hey, be all in on the process because I want you to be able to make a, 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 a like heartfelt, like educated, like, yes, this is, this is where I'm at in the process. This is what I feel about this decision, whatever way it is. Uh, we want you to be all in. And so um, Scott's gonna share just a little bit, like we, we got this whole voting process, right? Right. Well, that's part of how a First Baptist is going to make a decision here is ultimately there has to be a vote of the membership and that's how we operate. That's the only way we can do it. Yeah. And that provides us an opportunity to have discussion. And one of the things that we want to be able to do is really talk about it and uh, really hear from different people, their different ideas. You know, this kind of thing is, is scary for lots of people. Change in general is scary. And there's concerns, you know, that come up about, you know, the building and about uh, history of First Baptist being 150 years old. You know, what happens to that? And is that even important? and things like that. So we have a lot of discussion to have about that, how we're structured, is this going to work for lots of reasons, and those things are really important. And so uh, we'd like your input on that uh, for sure, especially uh, if you're a member, you're going to have an opportunity to vote on that, so please be engaged with that. Yes. We want you to be all in. We want to hear from you. Yep. We've, we've used this analogy that this is like dating. I realize it falls apart in certain <laughs> ways. Uh, but at this point... <laughs> At this point, we, you know, we don't have, the thing is, is we don't have commitments. We haven't signed anything saying that we're doing this or that. We're, we are coming together to say, hey, we want to see if this is going to work. Yeah. We want to see, and, and, you know, I would say it's courtship. We're hoping that it works. We're, we're not just dating somebody we just happened to met. Hey, come on over. No. Uh, you know, call me maybe. But uh, <laughs> we're not doing that. Yeah. Um, but we want to take this very, very seriously because yeah. the decision we're making has profound impacts on, on yeah. both churches and the ministry that we've been called to together here in University City. So that's our process. So uh, if that's yeah. unusual to you because you haven't been in a church like that before, that's just the way it is. And uh, we're yeah. excited about going through that and, and uh, seeing where the Lord leads through that. Exactly. And I think for, for our side, you know, we're four years old as a church, but to be able to look at the lineage of 150 years being in this city, being in this community, reaching people with the gospel, planting churches, that's our heartbeat. That's what we're about. And so it's not the end of something, but it's really the, the beginning of, of something new that God is doing, and we're going to continue that mission together. So that's the hope of all of this. So that's, that's why we're, we're doing all this. And, um, and for us, you know, again, coming back to the vision, it's this, are we together better 
Are we together for our city? And the answer is yeah. And I think for us, looking at Scripture, looking at what Jesus was all about, even Andrea reading that Scripture this morning helps us in really defining this. And so Luke 9, 49 through 10, 2 is our, our Scripture this morning. And um, just to give some context about what's happening here, uh, this is one of the most pivotal moments in the book of Luke. Uh, we see it in Luke 9.51. Um, really, if we were to define it for Jesus, this is his all-in moment. Um, we see it in Luke 9.51 where it says this, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Uh, what this means is Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem and that's all he's focusing on at this point and what we know is that Jerusalem is where Jesus would die Jesus would give his life um, Jesus would die for our sins and so Jesus is all in to die for us to sacrifice for us and now he is uh, starting to show us what it means to be disciples of Jesus be in all together and so what we're going to study this morning are just really three points from this text that help us to understand what this all means and really what it means for all of us, just as disciples of Jesus, to be all in in the kingdom of God. Right, when, we're, when we say we're all in for the kingdom of God, how does Jesus line that out? How does Jesus define that? And so there are three points that, that we see from this text. And so the first one is a kingdom mindset. The second one is true discipleship. And the third one is a common mission. A kingdom mindset, true discipleship, and a common mission. And so I'm gonna look at the first point. Scott's gonna study the third, uh, second point. I'll do the third one. We'll just kind of break it up like that. But we're just gonna run through this text. And so if you've got your Bibles today, look at um, verse 49 and 50. And we're gonna talk about a kingdom mindset. So here's what Jesus says. He says, Master, uh, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. So first off, well, what's going on here? Um, the disciples we see in Luke 9 had been given this task of going out and doing the work of ministry. So Jesus had, had set them apart, said, you're going to be the ones to do the work of ministry. And so along the way, along the path, they start to see that there are others who are doing the work of ministry as well. And they're not a part of the 12. So what happens is they get a little upset and they go over to Jesus and they say, Jesus, there's these guys over here who are doing your work, but you didn't tell them specifically to do that because you gave that responsibility to us, right? It was, it was our mission. It was our responsibility. You gave that mission to us. And so why are they out there doing that? So Jesus says to them this. He says, um, if they're not against us, they're for us. Now, what's the big thing that, that we can learn from this when he talks about not, not just a specific like, okay, this is my mission, this is your mission, but what does it look like to be a part of the mission of the kingdom of God? What was the thing that was separating them from being a part of this mission? Well, the disciples say, say it at the end of the sentence in verse 49. He says this, because he is not one of us. Because he's not one of us. So using that, that language of like us, there's us, there's them. There's someone doing good here. What's the problem? The problem was that the disciples said, well, he's not one of us. And specifically in the Greek, it literally means that because he's not following us, 
He's not following our way. He's not following us. He's not a part of us. And so there wasn't a very gracious spirit from the disciples, even, even John, right? And so John is known as the apostle of love. But what we find throughout Scripture is in John at this point in his life is not very loving, <laughs> right? He, he's like, because in the next Scripture, he's ready to call down fire on a town. Like, okay, this is, they are known as the, the, the sons of thunder, James and John, which you have a James and I John. I do. I have a James and John. I named my boys James and are John. Are they the sons of thunder is the question. They are uh, seven and ten, and we are learning yes is the answer to that question. But, uh, we so also, there's something uh, about these James and John. We also right? know it works out up. for them later in the book. So we're that, It does. It does. Because they end up becoming the, you know, James is, is one of the leaders in the church, and John is the apostle of love. But at this point, this is where they started, right? So they started at this place where... Jesus had to speak in their life, and he said, okay, that, that excuse, because they're not one of us, is not good enough of an excuse to go stop them. We need to understand here that this is a lot bigger than us. This is about the kingdom of God. You know, there's this quote from Timothy Keller about this. He says, they're not generous toward this guy. They're not giving him the benefit of the doubt. They want to control him. They're turf conscious. They're jealous. He's not one of us. Jesus come, comes along and says, be generous. Okay, he's not with you, but he's still for you because he believes the same things you believe. When we come together, the, my hope and my, my desire is that we, we will start to look at each other and say, you know what, that's my brother, that's my sister. That's a kingdom mindset. I already heard it this week where somebody was, was at... Rite Aid, and, and they said they saw somebody from First Baptist and they were part of Grace City. And they started to have a conversation. But that conversation wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't even have known each other if all of this didn't happen. Right? There's something much bigger than us. And it starts with a kingdom mindset. My son, uh, John, last night asked me who wrote the book of Revelation. And I said, John. And he goes, yes. <laughs> okay. Then he asked his mother, who wrote Ephesians? Paul. Oh, okay. There's no Paul in the There's family. no Paul in our family, yeah. but that's yeah. all right. <laughs> you know what? Uh, there's a sign for a Christian who is all in, and they understand what it is that they've been commanded to do. I'm going to tell you what that is. Jesus Christ gave his followers the, the, a command to the greatest endeavor ever that any human being has ever carried out is to make disciples of Jesus' church. It's the only one that's going to matter. It's that endeavor that matters. And Christians who are all in, we're about making disciples for real, not just talking about it. We actually want to do it. Discipleship is a word that we can really complicate. The church complicates it. We turn it into a program. You know, I've been to churches where discipleship is a book, and if you use that book and do it that way, it's discipleship. But if you use somebody else's book, it's not discipleship because they wrote it, not us. And it gets really weird. And it's like, well, what's the difference? That book is really good, and this book is really good. Why? Why does it have to be a program? You see, discipleship is something that is inherently relational. And what this is about is truly following Jesus Christ yeah. in our lives. See, and it's not just to learn his teaching. The old idea of discipleship in your Bible, the way they would have heard that word, is the idea of being someone's disciple is that you would actually follow them. And you would follow them around. And the idea was that you would get so close to that rabbi or that mentor that you were learning from that you wanted to be so close to them and walking in their steps that the dust from their flip-flops or their, they didn't call them that back then, their sandals, <laughs> would just 
would get up on your sandals and get up into your, uh, into your cloak or into your tunic, that you wanted to be that close. And discipleship wasn't just about learning from them, it was about living the way they lived their life in your, whatever your context is. You can't live their life, but you have a context that you can live like Jesus in wherever it is that God has placed you. This is discipleship. It's not just to learn someone's teaching, but to be able to ask to become like somebody, to live like that person in your context. In verse 57, it says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So a guy comes up to Jesus and says, hey, as you're walking along the road, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, this guy's uh, jumping the gun a little bit, right? I mean, when you say you're going to follow Jesus, here's the thing. Do you know what you're saying? Do you really understand what it is that you are committing to when you do that? Jesus was developing quite a following. He had, in the next chapter, he sends out 72 people, right? He's got a lot of people. How many of you have 72 people that you can send out? He's got a lot that he is prepared and ready to send out. There's this many people following him. People like to be part of stuff like that. You want to be close to it. And Jesus was offering a lot, healings and miracles, and it was quite a show to be around Jesus. Imagine the insight that Jesus had on the scriptures about probably the Romans. John tells us that he talked about all kinds of stuff that you can't record in all the books. I don't know what Jesus talked about on the, on the side. I like to think he talked about all kinds of things. I imagine him sitting around the campfire and saying, see that moon up there? One day people are going to walk on it. No. <laughs> I don't know if Jesus did that or not, but... Imagine how cool it would be to be around somebody who just understands all of this stuff. Well, and what happened is people felt important to be around Jesus. You ever been with somebody and you feel important just because you're with them? You get your picture taken with a celebrity or something and, you know, you put it on Instagram. Why? Why do you do that? Well, it makes you feel kind of important. Uh, it doesn't really matter. With Jesus, people felt important. And this guy says, hey, I want to be with you. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus is talking about what it means to be a disciple. And his disciples that are following him, they don't even get it. They start to have this argument about who's the greatest among them. Why? Because it feels important to be around Jesus. But Jesus stops this guy in his tracks and he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. That's not the answer this guy was expecting. I don't even know how you would answer that question. That's probably why there's no answer recorded. The guy probably just went, well, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Do you realize what you're asking Jesus says? Do you realize that you're saying you're willing to go wherever I go? I don't even have a place to live. I am fully dependent on the hospitality of others. And Jesus was loved by others, but he was also very hated. And people in authority hated him, and they hated those who loved Jesus. And following Jesus put you in tremendous risk. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Hello? And whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very self? That's being a disciple. And Jesus is saying, do you understand what you are asking? You need to think about this. There is a cost to following Jesus. We all need to follow Jesus, but we should not be blind to the fact that there is a significant cost. The next guy, verse 59, and he, Jesus, said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
that seems kind of rude from Jesus, you know, at first reading. I got to go bury my dad. Well, forget burying your dad. Let your dad bury himself. What, what do you mean by that? It just seems really odd. But when you get into what it means in the context, it means something completely different. When somebody would die back then, you didn't have family members congregating for a week or two making arrangements. Usually what would happen is the person would pass away and they would be buried the same day. You'd put them in the tomb the exact same day. You needed to do that. You'd doctor them up and get them in there as fast as you can. And so what this guy is asking is what would happen in the culture is that you would wait. This might be a little bit, you know, gross, but uh, we're grown ups, right? As the body decays, what people do, it takes about a year. You go back and you take your loved one out of the tomb, what's left of them, and you take all of their bones and you put them in a little bone box called an ossuary, and then you put it back in the tomb. It saves space for your next relative. And so the thing is, is that when this guy is saying, hey, I need to go bury my dad, what he's saying is, I would love to follow you, but I need about a year, and I'll get to it eventually. One day I will follow you, but uh, I got this thing I got to do. And Jesus is responding to him saying, you know what? Actually, that's not discipleship. That there is an urgency right now to people that you know right now who need to know that the Son of Man is here. Very often, this is kind of how we do it as Christians. What would it look like if I actually made disciples? And we have a Bible study and we say, what would it look like if we made disciples? And we think about it and then we go and we never make any disciples, but we know what it would look like. Or we don't have time to invest in that person at our workplace who we know needs Jesus, but we don't really want to spend the time or the money to take them to coffee and invest in them. Or what would it look like if we make disciples? I don't know. Maybe we ought to pray for the people that God has purposely and providentially placed in our life. You see, there's a cost to discipleship. It's your time and your prayers. It's an investment in those people. It's preparation and understanding the Word of God so you know how to respond when they ask you why you have hope in Jesus Christ. And then it's a lifestyle change as well because the way you live your life is the Bible that most people are reading. They're not reading their Bible probably. They're reading us. And we look like we're followers of Jesus. Do we have the dust from his sandals up on our feet? Or are we too far away to notice? And Jesus is saying that God has placed in our relational worlds people who are there for a reason, people who are there who are purposefully and providentially placed there right now for us to love, for us to show the ways of Jesus Christ. In our church, we... uh, often call this your oikos. Your oikos in the New Testament is a Greek word. It means household, but it's usually used in the context of evangelism. It's usually used in the context of go and tell your oikos about what the Lord has done for you. And oikos is typically everybody, if you're a sociologist up here at school, you might be studying oikos. That's not a yogurt. Uh, It is a word that means your social circle, people that you interact with on a regular basis. One sociologist said your oikos is people that you spend an hour with every, every week, that you actually know them. It's your next door neighbors, it's your classmates, it's your roommates, people in your house, people that, you know, if you're in prison, it's your cellmates, it works wherever you go, there are people. God has put them in your life for a reason. He's put them in your life because they're there either to help you become a better disciple because they know the Lord and they're investing in you or because you are investing in them and praying for them and saying, God, how can you use me in their life? And we need to do that today, not next year or when I get settled or when I've taken a few more classes and I've done Christianity 101, 201, 301, 401, and six years later, I'm ready to make disciples, but I don't know any more Christians because I only hang out with church people or I don't know any non-Christians. Oikos, urgency, no time to wait. Then there's a third guy, verse 61 
Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand up to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Man, that's a harsh statement. What do you say to that? Here's what he's saying. When you put your hand on the plow, is there any farmers in here? Nobody, huh? Okay. <laughs> I read a study that says most city folk have not put their hands in dirt in over a year. So, but I had the luxury of hearing a farmer talk about this passage once. And he said, well, here's what it means. He says, when you put your hand on the plow, you need to keep going straight and keep your eye on what you're doing because you want to have straight rows, straight furrows, right? You ever drive out to the farmland and you look outside your window while you're driving down the freeway and you see all these great straight lines? It's amazing. It's incredible that that happens. Well, this farmer, he said, here's what happens. If you take your eye off of what you're doing, you look around, you look behind you, the plow goes crooked. He says, you can't help it. It'll go a little bit crooked, but then you've messed up your entire row. And when you've messed up your entire row, he says, then you also are going to be able to harvest less because you've probably messed up the row next to you. And then what also happens is you lose your testimony as a farmer. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, it's because all the other farmers look at you and think you're an idiot because your rows aren't straight, that you're not a very good farmer. You must not really be good at it. What Jesus is saying here is something pretty profound. Obviously, Jesus wants you to say goodbye to your family and to honor your family. There are plenty of teachings in Scripture about how important it is to take care of your mother and father, to take care of your aging relatives, to do that. He's not saying don't be a part of that. That is part of your testimony. It's who you are. But it's about priorities. It's about when we realize that what we are called to do is make disciples. That needs to be our priority. Jesus is our priority. He's our priority in this church. He's our priority in our homes. He's our priority in our workplace. He is our priority everywhere we go. And when we're making this, we're put, we take our hand off the plow and look around, we've lost our priority and our rows get crooked and our harvest becomes less likely to happen or we can harvest less or other people won't think we're even really truly a good harvester because we've taken our eye off the ball. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, I need to be first. I am the priority, and nothing else should get in that way, in the way of that. This is about priorities. Is your priority the harvest, or is it something else in your life? You know, why is the church in our country especially lost so much ground? Why is it not reaching the the harvest? A lot of it's because our priorities are elsewhere. We have people with priorities in politics on the left and the right, Sometimes we have priorities that seem really good. Our families, it really matters, but it goes beyond that. Mm. Growth, church growth, you know what? That, that matters if you're bringing in new believers. But let's not be confused. Our church didn't just grow today. The kingdom value is zero. We just, people just changed locations, started meeting in the same place. But church growth is not one church closes down or one church merges with another one and now you suddenly have a big, that's not growth. Growth is when people in your oikos, your relational world, come to know Jesus and come to church with you and we put them in a tank back here or in the thing that you guys baptize people with or you do it at the beach and they accept Jesus Christ as Lord and they start making disciples, that's growth. Mm -hmm. And that's what we wanna look at and that's what Jesus is about. People who come to Jesus Christ and have saving faith and they're going to heaven when they die and they become children of God and they get to make an impact for the kingdom of God forever. This is what this is about. And there's urgency about that because the people in your life, they're dying. Did you know that? Everybody you know is, all of them. Everybody's terminal. That's really bad news. I'm sorry to spoil that for you. We need to do this now. This is what 
following Jesus means, and a church that makes this a priority does grow in healthy ways, and it structures itself so that the congregation is able to minister to each other and not their oikos, and they don't just leave it up to the pastors, and they actually empower everyone to use the gifts that they've been used to minister to one another so that people come to the Lord. It doesn't try to do everything that there is to do, but it focuses on key areas of kingdom mission, and this is what true discipleship is about. So there are a few things that we can learn from our, our text. Is it my turn or your turn? It's your turn. <laughs> that was good stuff, Scott. Thank um, you. Gold star for me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, lastly, it's from memory that we got a common mission. A common mission. And so I want us to, to end with uh, verses 1 and 2 in, in chapter 10. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him and to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Look at verse one. It says, the Lord appointed 72 others. You know, it wasn't just about these 12 disciples. Right, what, what was it that they got caught up in? It's about us. Jesus is just appointing us to go do his work. But what they're finding out is it wasn't just about them. Now it's becoming the 72. Why 72? Well, 72 was a representation of the nations after the flood. It's symbolic for the world. See, this is a group that is meant to reach the world. The word sent in Latin is the word missio. It's the root word for our word mission. See, what is the mission that Jesus sends out the 72 on? It's, it's this. It's, it's, it's about the world, knowing Christ. It's not about themselves. See, and what this is going to do, it's going to push them outside of themselves. It's going to push them outside of what they would have naturally done on their own. It's selfless. You know, one of the great things that I've been able to do while being a part of this whole process is go to Spectrum Ministries down in Tijuana, a ministry that First Baptist supports. And I was able to see not only the beautiful mission of, of being the hands and feet of Jesus to go out there to wash kids' feet, to wash their hair, to give them clothes that people had donated, but talking with Jim and hearing about how it started, he said it just simply started with a youth pastor being asked by some teenagers, hey, what, what, what did it look like if we went down to Tijuana and to go surf and maybe we can go help some people? It was a surf trip. But it was youth that loved Jesus. And so they went down and they saw the need and because of that need, a whole ministry was started. That was back in the 80s, 70s, 60s. <laughs> Went back even further, 60s. I know in the 60s, there were a lot of people that were coming to know Jesus during that time for real meeting the Lord. And so for me, I think, what does it look like to be a true believer? What is Jesus saying to, to, to this group of 72 true disciples that he's talking about here true disciples it's believers who understand 
that it's not about themselves. But it's about the mission of Jesus, the, the, the good news of the gospel, reaching the world and being pushed outside of their own comfort zones at the cost of their personal comfort. You know, there's a study called The Great Opportunity. It's talking about what is the church going to look like in America in 2050? It's just kind of pushing out, like, what, what's the church going to look like in 30 years? Because right now we're here, right? But what's the church going to look like in 30 years? It says the next 30 years will represent the largest missions opportunity in the history of America. So 26% of Generation Z is the largest. It's the largest generation in U.S. history. Generation Z right now, already 26% of the U.S. population is still growing. 47%. Generation Z is also the most radically diverse generation in U.S. history. 58%. The likelihood that evangelical Generation Z youth will stay in their faith. 58%. And so for us right now, what are we going to do with that? Because these are real stats, right? And when we look at the cost of discipleship, when we look at the, the, the common mystery, what does it look like to reach people with the gospel? This is important. In that study, the great opportunity says, if we return to retention and evangelism like we saw just 20 years ago, more people will be saved than during the Great Awakenings, the African-American church growth after the Civil War and every Billy Graham conversion combined. The numbers are just that big. Do you want to know what's at stake? The future of the church. See, this isn't us just getting together, right? And and this is the thing that's on Scott and my heart. How are we going to reach this next generation with the gospel? How are we going to make true disciples of Jesus? Oz Guinness said it well when he says, do you commit yourself to a third winning of the West? Will you commit yourself to that? No matter what. Because more people need to know about Christ. And so just some takeaways. What, what can we learn from, from all of this? First one is Scott. We need to pray earnestly for the workers, for all of us, all of you who are working so hard to make things happen. Those of you who got here at 7, 7.30 this morning, when we had our first prayer time of the morning, first of several, the people who are out in missions, people who are do, working with the kids right now. I went down there 15 minutes before the service and they were already going crazy. There's so many kids. We need to pray for them. Yeah. He told the people, Jesus said, that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He knew. Yeah. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We need to pray for this. You heard the word fanatic? It's the word fanatic. It comes from a Latin word, phanum, and the Latin word literally means sanctuary or temple. That's what fanatic means, temple. And the reason for that word is the word was created because when they were writing the Bible, the Old Testament in Latin, they needed a word to describe the people who met at the temple. Fanatic. They were fanatical, different than everybody else, distinctive from everybody else. They actually believed all this stuff and they were acting on it. We need to be fanatical about what Jesus wants us to do. And that means we need workers. We are not looking for people to do chores in our church. We're looking for people who want to be on a mission 
And that mission might be that you greet people warmly, that you help park cars and it matters, or that you make the coffee which matters tremendously. <laughs> did you make that last week? I did. You know, one of the things is, uh, is you know, for us, uh, um, one of the things that's going on, you know, is in this whole thing, you have all these new people all of a sudden and new people volunteering and all these different roles. And, and when you do these church merger things, you have different emotions that people feel. And one of the emotions that First Baptist people feel is like, wow, this is like a takeover. Look at all these people. And it feels like we're doing so much of their stuff, and we are. And uh, although they're doing a whole lot of our stuff too, it's maybe we just don't see that part. But one of the things, you know, I got some feedback from the, the great uh, uh, turnout at the volunteer training that happened a couple weeks ago is that there were so many more Grace City people. And you know what? Here's the thing. Number one, if you're a church plant, you're loaded with workers or it doesn't work. I mean, that's, you're going to have that. That's just the nature of it, okay? Uh, and we don't want to lose that in all of this. That's really important. You know, but for First Baptist, we're in a season where we need more workers. And I was out of town. My sister got married, and there was other things going on for lots of people maybe who weren't there. But here's the thing. We don't have as many people that we need to do some of the stuff. You know who made the coffee last week? Pastor Scott, hopefully it was better than usual. I probably ought to make a coffee, but, but you know what? We need people to do that. The people who make our coffee moved away. And here's the way I want you to look at it. I understand that there's a lot of change. We want all of you at First Baptist and Grace City together to be involved together, that there isn't an us versus them, that this period of time, even though there's not a permanence to it yet, even though we have a lot of decisions to make, this is not us and them. This is us together as children of God working together for the same thing. And I want you to see it this way. This is how I see it. I see it as reinforcements, not a takeover. Hmm. I see it as we need help in these areas. And one of the puzzle pieces as we talked about this is like, you have help in these areas. How about that? I need more coffee people. We've been trying to get that for years. You've got great coffee people. <laughs> our chil our children's workers are burning out. And most of them have moved away this past year. It just happens. We need reinforcements, and we have a whole lot of them down there. But you know what? We need 20 more people in our children's ministry right now. 20. 20 more people. That's reinforcements. We need people in our youth ministry. We had a youth event uh, that was uh, pretty good, I understand. Uh, I think Friday night or was it Friday night? Friday night. Yeah. And uh, we need people to work with young, young people, youth. We want to reach these, this high school right over here the high schools in our area, the middle school down the street, all those kids. They need to hear the gospel, yeah. and we need help. We need workers into the harvest field. We need city group leaders. When the church gets a little bit bigger, it's got to get smaller. You've got to get into small groups. It's how you get to know each other. That's how you pray for one another. That's how your needs get met. That's how we minister to one another. That's got to happen. We need people to lead those groups, to open up their homes, to be willing to do that. And we'll train you and help you do that. There's lots of places. We need people to visit and just sit with some people who are shut-ins, people who just need someone to talk to. We have a 55-plus community over here, and I realize if you live there and you're 55 or 65 and maybe 75, you're not retired. But a lot of those people over there are, and they're lonely. Imagine the ministry opportunity that we have for people that you can walk and go see. There's so many opportunities here. We need people to pray all the time. Pray for one another. Pray on your own. Know what to pray for. Come in here and just pray. We need people who pray. That is their job in the church to pray. Take it seriously. There's so many things that we can do together that makes us better together. 
as workers in this harvest field. So I want to encourage you and I want to pray and ask you to pray for this. We need yeah. to be doing it. Yeah, I think the, the beautiful thing of, of Jesus, what he says is this. He, you know, he sees all this work and he doesn't say, okay, get ready because you're going to be able to do all this. He says, pray. Start with prayer. Come to the, the Lord of the harvest is what he says. And so our direction is on Christ for all of these things to happen. You know, and there is a cost to discipleship. And so I, I want to remind us of this. It says, uh, again, the great opportunity says, if you could do anything to help the church be more fruitful over the next 30 years, what would it be? Because all of us have to be a part of this. It's not just some of us. It's all of us have to be in on that. George Whitfield once said, he says, I'm never better than when I'm at, on the full stretch for God. When I'm on the full stretch for God, it's going to push me completely out of my comfort zone. But you know what? That's when I'm at my best. There is a cost to discipleship. Will you join us in this? And lastly, will you be all in? You know, we're, we're going to send out the great opportunity. I would love for you guys just to, to read that and to see, okay, what, what, is, what is the predictions of what is the church going to look like in 2050? And we'll, we got to sign up in the back so you can sign up. And if you need a paper copy, we'll have it printed for you next week. But here's the thing, this is an urgent matter within the church, within our country, that people need to know Christ. You see, why, why do we go all in? You know, there's this passage in Luke at the end, 9, 52 through 56. It says this, he says, and he sent his messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Here's the thing. What, what, what does this all mean? Why did, Jesus say, why did Jesus rebuke them for that? It's because Jesus himself was heading to Jerusalem to take that fire, to take that wrath of God upon himself. What was it that the, the Samaritans needed to hear more than anything? That Jesus died for them. The ones that, during that time, James and John would have separated themselves and say, no, that's not, that's not a part of our group. Jesus was going to die for them. And so what we see here is the good news of the gospel. See, Jesus was all in to take the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. And so what is it that's going to change our hearts? What is it going to change our minds about anything? It's when we see that Jesus died for us and we didn't deserve it. He offers us his life out of grace. And so how do we want to enter into all of this? Moving forward, when we say we're all in, just remember that it was Jesus who was it all in for you to die for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you've shown us what it means to be all in. Not for yourself, but for us. You died for us. And so teach us, Lord, what that means as a, as a body of believers, true believers that love you. Teach us how to sacrifice 
as you have done for us. And help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus throughout. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.